0: Today's podcast is brought to you by Hemonc.org. Hemonc.org's easy-to-use platform updated by disease-specific specialists from across the country is your perfect pocket reference for all of your chemotherapy-related questions. Best part, it's free. Check out Hemonc.org today. That's H-E-M-O-N-C dot O-R-G. Hey, friends. This episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemonk Podcast. We're coming at you from Merleau University Medical Center. I'm Ronick. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we're continuing on our breast cancer journey, this time moving on to triple negative breast cancer. And this will round out our early stage breast cancer discussion, so
1: I would consider that a milestone, guys. Yeah, a big deal. I mean, we have gone through a lot of data learned a lot through this. And and really, I hope our listeners are taken away as much as we are out of this whole discussion.
2: Yeah, I'm, you know, partially relieved to be done with this, but I do really feel like we've come a long way. We learned a lot. So happy that we're wrapping it up today.
1: As
0: we've been doing, especially for this breast cancer series, there is a lot of information. And so definitely highly recommend checking out the show notes on our website. We are breaking all of this down, and then also we've done our best to try to give you key takeaways from a lot of the important trials and a lot of the important information so that if the overall episode is overwhelming, be sure to check that portion out, and that may help clarify a lot of uh, these nuances. So guys, without further ado, let's go ahead and roll that show. All right, guys, how are we feeling today?
1: Doing really good. It's actually been quite a while since we've recorded, so I think... Listeners, temporally, this is all recorded at random times. But we had that whole series where we worked with our friends, the two Onk Docs, doing the ASCO updates to Paging Hemonk series, which is a whole lot of fun. Check that out if you haven't. But I'm glad to be back doing our regular thing. Have you guys been watching anything weird on television?
0: I lost my subscription to HBO Max at the moment. So I am now binging on the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel uh, so that I can finish out that, that series
1: in the meantime. That wraps up really well. Surprisingly, I, I, I was kind of losing it in the last couple of seasons, but this one was really excellent. Ronak, were you watching the new Sex in the City show? On no, Max? I
0: never. I no, no, I never watched
1: that. Should I? I think you should. I have to be okay. honest. I mean, it's it's a little bit woke and it's a little weird, trying too hard. But you know, it's it's worth it. The trash is worth it. When
0: I get my HBO back, I can add that to my list. After I'm done with Succession, though, I still need to finish Succession.
2: Yeah, I haven't been watching anything weird. I just the same same old stuff.
0: <laughs> Isn't it called Max now, right? Yeah, just just Max. It's called Max now. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Didn't mean to offend HBO. Yeah. It's just called, it's called Max now. But guys, I, I am also happy to be doing this again and uh, hang out with you guys and, and talking more about breast cancer and picking up kind of where we left off. Again, I'm excited to be at the triple negative episode today, just finally feeling like we've reached a milestone in our breast cancer discussion. So this is certainly exciting. Um, Vivek, as always, do you want to kick our episode off with the case?
1: Yeah, let's do it. So we've got a 38-year-old female who presents after a recent diagnosis of right-sided triple-negative breast cancer. She's noted to have a 4.2-centimeter primary breast mass on a diagnostic mammogram. She underwent an ultrasound-guided core biopsy. The pathology was consistent with invasive ductal mammary carcinoma that was ERPR-negative by IHC and HER2-negative with IHC1+, and FISH-negativity. It was a grade 3 tumor with a KI-67 of 60%. There was no special type histology. In addition to that, she had a clinically palpable, movable, 1-centimeter right axillary lymph node that was biopsy-proven triple-negative ductal carcinoma with a clip placed by radiology. She underwent genetic testing and was found to have a germline mutation in BRCA1. We have plans for neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy with TCAC plus pembrolizumab, followed by surgery and radiation, and then more adjuvant pembrolizumab. So can one of you give us a little brief overview of localized triple negative breast cancer before we really get into how we treat these patients and the nuances and the history of this disease?
2: Sure. Yeah, I can go over that. I'm anxious to talk about this because this diagnosis always makes me very nervous. Breast cancer is something that I think of is happening to young folks and old folks alike, and, and it's something where we usually are pretty good at treating it, but triple negative just scares me. And so it it is a very heterogeneous clinical entity, and it's notoriously difficult to treat in the metastatic setting. We lack, in many cases, some of these targeted options that we have for other forms of breast cancer. A majority of patients diagnosed with this type of breast cancer are under the age of 40, and nearly all of these patients will require some form of systemic therapy uh, as a part of their breast cancer treatment. The three-year overall survival is about 75% for these patients compared with 90% for non-triple-negative breast cancer. There tend to be more early recurrences in this type of disease compared with especially those hormone receptor-positive types of tumors that do have a lot of late recurrences. If your patient's under 60 years old at the time of diagnosis, where, again, a majority of them are, they're going to need to be tested for BRCA, because this mutation tends to be present in about 20% of patients that are diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. Pathologic CR rates, we are able to get pretty high in triple negative breast cancer when we give neoadjuvant systemic therapy, uh, somewhere around the neighborhood of 60%. But we also know that patients that do have residual disease on their pathology tend to do worse in the long term compared with other forms of breast cancer. This will become more relevant as we start to incorporate strategies for changing therapy after surgery for folks that do have residual disease, like we did with in the HER2-positive episode with our TDM1, the drug antibody conjugate. So be sure to go back and check that episode out if you're, uh, you have questions about that. Yeah, that's sort of the big overview and some of the big points for triple negative breast cancer.
1: Yeah, Dan. And I think the hardest thing for me is one of my first patients at the VA where you rarely see women with breast cancer just based on the patient population. I had a young 38-year-old who had triple-negative breast cancer, and it's it's really hard when you get one of these patients, and it's really important to understand the basics, the natural history, and it really helps us also understand how we're going to treat these patients. So, Renick, I think it's a good idea to review exactly what triple-negative breast cancer means from a pathologic perspective. And I think we should also talk about if there's any molecular classification that we use for these patients, like we've talked about a lot for that hormone receptor positive setting.
0: Yeah, Vivek, I completely agree with you. And and this will also hopefully remind our listeners about the importance of looking at that pathology report and making sure that you're interpreting all this information for yourself. So when we talk about triple negative, remember the first part of that is we're looking at those ER and PR receptors. We're looking at whether or not there is expression based on IHC. So ERPR negative means that less than 1% of the cells are expressing these receptors on when assessed by IHC. And then HER2 negative means that they're IHC zero to one or IHC two plus, and then they have a negative fish testing. And so remember that you can, Refer back to our prior episodes on her too for a discussion about that. But remember the mnemonic 246, which is what we also discuss in our vocabulary episodes. So be sure to go back and check those out in our prior episodes. You know, there was earlier work trying to understand a molecular classification in triple negative breast cancer. And really the hope here was to try to identify patients who are most likely to achieve a pathologic CR to neoadjuvant therapy and an attempt to identify targeted therapeutic options. So in 2016, there was an analysis that, that identified four molecular classifications of triple negative breast cancer, but these are not really used to inform current practice. And the bottom line from numerous studies was that not only do the individual cancer cell molecular profiles matter, but more importantly, the additional contribution of the tumor microenvironment is also at play here. And so ultimately what this suggests is that it makes it really difficult to find a magic bullet like we did for HER2-positive disease or hormone receptor-positive disease because of the heterogeneity of this disease.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and when we look at some of those studies that did some of this genomic sequencing, when we look at the tumor microenvironment, we know there's a lot at play. And we know that some of these triple negative breast cancers have high tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. Some of them might express some high levels of pdl one but not all. And this led us to eventually trying this immunotherapy for these patients, which we'll get to. Okay.
2: So we have this patient, she's got a four centimeter mass and uh, that movable axillary lymph node that we know is involved by proving it on biopsy. And we also know that in oncology world, patients with lymph node involvement will need chemotherapy or some form of systemic therapy. So why do we give these patients neoadjuvant chemotherapy as opposed to just adjuvant therapy, just therapy after surgery? What's the rationale for that?
1: The big thing is we had these older cooperative group trials, and something that you'll see in breast cancer very frequently is NSABP. It's just a cooperative group of multiple centers coming together and enrolling these women on these clinical trials. And what we found in the 90s, really, most of these women were enrolled in the 90s, we looked at, does it matter if we do neoadjuvant or adjuvant therapy? This is the time when we didn't have things like trastuzumab, not these HER2-directed therapies. We used our standard chemotherapy, and we found, actually, there was no difference in survival outcomes whether we did neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy. The reason why we preferred this neoadjuvant approach is that some of these women had downstaging of their tumors. You could downstage the axilla. This would lead to more optimal surgical resections, possibly preventing that axillary lymph node dissection that we had talked about in our surgery episode. And this strategy works particularly well in triple negative breast cancer because they're more chemo responsive. So it makes sense to do that. The other thing is, well, these triple negative breast cancer patients have higher risk disease with early recurrences. So if we can get a chance at eradicating that microscopic metastatic disease that's important though like i said didn't matter if you did neoadjuvant or adjuvant in those really pivotal trials and we'll, we'll link those into into our show notes just if you're curious about the history i mean it's not really quite important for the current landscape but i think it's it's just good context to have So guys,
0: we have these patients that have highly chemo-responsive tumors, as we have been alluding to. And so I'm assuming the idea here is to try to give them therapy as early as possible in hopes to try to downstage them and have better overall disease control. And listeners, remember that a pathologic CR is when there's no residual breast cancer in both the primary site and any involved lymph nodes. And I know we've used that term path CR before, so that is a definition. No residual breast cancer in both the primary tumor site and any involved lymph nodes. Recently though, guys, I heard there was some buzz about residual cancer burden or an
1: RCB. What does that mean? I think this idea of pathologic CR and this idea of the residual cancer burden, or the RCB, is very critical to understand as we really see how the landscape of triple negative breast cancer treatment is going. One of the important things is, well, in triple negative breast cancer, new adjuvant chemotherapy became the standard of care because you had higher path CR rates, and we knew that a pathologic CR was prognostic, meaning if you achieve a pathologic CR that means you're going to have a better long-term outcome. So that made a lot of sense. But now then, what's the point in subdividing this into this RCB or this residual cancer burden? Well, even if the pathologic CR is prognostic, that doesn't necessarily mean that if you give more intensive treatment to somebody to push them into a pathologic CR, that that patient will have a better outcome. So I'll give you an example. Imagine we have 10 patients with triple negative breast cancer. Let's say we gave them standard neoadjuvant therapy, and about 4 out of 10 of them get a PATH-CR, 40% PATH-CR rates. Now let's take another 10 patients with triple-negative breast cancer. We gave them a new fancy neoadjuvant therapy, and we got them up to 60% pathologic CR. But when you then looked at the overall survival between these 20 patients, you found that the two arms... At five years had the same overall survival. So you wonder to yourself, how could that be? If we had more patients getting that path CR, the reason is, well, in in both cases we had those four patients who were gonna achieve path CR. They had good prognosis. Now we intensified therapy and pushed two more into the path CR group. But what ended up happening is they had inherently bad biology. They had a tough cancer. So even though we pushed them to no visible residual disease with our eyeballs, pathologists is looking at the sample nothing left with our eyeballs, that doesn't mean there's not residual cancer left over that will then relapse still. And that is why people will talk about it's prognostic, but it's not a validated trial level surrogate. I recommend any fellow, and we're going to have episodes on our on our podcast about trial level surrogacy, to just Google it and read some of the papers, and we'll link some in our show notes. It's very insightful, and it'll really give you a better understanding about this concept. But to get back to this residual cancer burden, so now we know that, okay, it's not just a simple binary measure either, right? Path CR versus no path CR. if you don't get path CR, all of them are going to do poorly. That doesn't make a lot of sense. What if you only had very residual amount of cancer cells left? Is that different than more burden of cancer cells? We ha- developed this standardized system, and we have four categories: residual cancer burden, RCB0, which is a path CR. RCB1, which means minimal residual disease, and RCB2 and RCB3. In general, think of RCB0 and 1 as very favorable, and RCB2 and 3, meaning I have more residual disease and, in general, have less favorable long-term outcomes, and there's multiple trials that have shown this, and we're going to link those to our show notes.
2: And my understanding of this is that it's not quite ready for prime time right now, but that we're, we're looking into it. We're, we're looking to see if it ultimately makes sense to divide patients in these groups. And honestly, I think it will based on some of the prognostic data we already have.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And so essentially what you guys are saying, and this is just me clarifying, is that we still know that our triple negative patients are in general more chemo responsive. And we understand that a better tumor response is certainly prognostic. But we certainly do want to continue to achieve optimal surgical resection and downstage our patients. So that is why we're giving them neoadjuvant therapy. Is there a time when we don't give neoadjuvant therapy though?
2: Yeah. where I mean, we're always trying to look and see on which patients we can de-escalate and not not expose them to as much therapy. And remember to, to go back to that vocab episode if you haven't listened to it in a while, but this is another time when, when we can kind of keep that dollar bill mnemonic in mind because, you know, obviously if you have nodal disease, that's you're getting neoadjuvant chemotherapy and that's predetermined. But if you don't have nodal disease, then we want to look at what the T stage is, and that's where these dollar bills come in remember that we have the $1, $2, and $5 bills, right? So for one centimeter, that's looking at T1C, two centimeters, that's T2, and five centimeters or more, T3. So with this mnemonic in mind, if you have a less than $2 and no nodes, then you can proceed to surgery first and plan for adjuvant chemotherapy. And remember, we discussed the concept of trying to deescalate and and move away from using an anthracycline with the ABC trial a couple of weeks ago. In this situation, this is one of those scenarios where it's appropriate to omit that anthracycline and just give adjuvant chemotherapy with less intensive TC for four cycles. So if you see a stage two or a three in a breast cancer trials, what they're referring to is that the tumor is, in fact, greater than two centimeters or has node positivity. Those patients, we do have to, unfortunately, move for more intensive therapy. But stage one, below $2, no nodes, that's when we can do this TC times four.
0: Do either of you have trouble remembering the nuances of all of these chemotherapy
1: regimens? You know, Rona... I- I don't have that problem. And you know why? It's not because I know everything, but it's because of org. And anytime I see a new patient that I'm about to start chemotherapy, I go to this website. It's free, easy to use, evidence-based. It's my go-to anytime I start my patients because it gives me the dosing schedule and all of the up-to-date information.
2: Yeah, I'm a big fan too. I use it today in clinic, in fact. Not only do they break down the regimens by disease subtype, but they also provide links to those original articles that led to the approval of the therapies listed. Since these pages are updated constantly by disease-specific experts, you'll always be up-to-date on the latest regimens and dosing schedules. It's a great supplement to our fellow on-call website. Learn more about hemonc.org by visiting their website. That's H-E-M-O-N-C dot O-R-G. So our patient had a four-centimeter tumor and a lymph node, right? So she's unfortunately not in this category where you can spare her neoadjuvant therapy. And we mentioned that nowadays, at least as of the recording of this episode, who knows what it'll be a few months from now, but she's going to get TCAC and pembrolizumab. But previously, you know, we talked about dense ACT or DDACT. So let's start just with that regimen as though that was the standard of care still, and that's what we're going to give her. Talk a little bit about sort of what the evidence was behind that, how that came about.
0: So Dan, the optimal chemotherapy backbone for triple negative breast cancer is still up for debate. At least that's my understanding. And listeners, remember, just please check out our show notes. We'll put all this in detail and we'll also have the references. But with that in mind, let's first talk about that dose dense ACT that Dan just mentioned. And remember that here, we're talking about doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide followed by taxol. There was a pivotal trial done by that CalGB group that we've also heard of before, remember they're another cooperative group, and this trial was done in 2003, and they had showed that dense AC was better than standard dosing, which at that time was given every two weeks with GCSF as opposed to every three weeks, with approximately a 7% improvement in that disease-free survival. And we've discussed previously that there was a pivotal ECOG trial known as E1199 that looked at whether we needed paclitaxel or docetaxel and looked at weekly versus Q3 week dosing for each. And here's what we found in these studies. Number 1, we found that weekly taxol is better than taxol given every 3 weeks. We found that docetaxel given every 3 weeks is better than weekly docetaxel. We found that weekly taxol had survival advantages over other strategies, but this did not hold up in long-term follow-up with similar efficacy to Q3-week taxol. So we go with weekly taxol generally because it's less toxic, and there was an overall survival advantage in the triple negative subgroup of this trial.
2: That makes a lot of sense. And and remember that we would give this DDACT to triple negative breast cancer patients who are not eligible to immunotherapy in in many cases. So I understand that that things are still a little up in the air about what the standard of care is. But yeah, if if someone's not eligible for immunotherapy, still going to do DDACT. But, you know, we do throw immunotherapy at everything we can these days. So I understand why that got included in some of these newer combinations. But where do we get the carboplatin from? Where's platinum coming into the mix
1: here? This is one of the things that I think I first learned as a fellow, probably two months into fellowship. One of my attendings, who's now really high up in Astrazeneca, she she was telling me about, yeah, I had carboplatin for women with BRCA mutations, and it, it was very interesting when she told me this. And really, what she was telling me was that the investigators in breast cancer are super clever. The platinum agents work really well in cancer cells with DNA repair deficiency. And we knew that early-stage triple-negative breast cancer had a high proportion of homologous DNA recombination defects due to mutations like in BRCA, so it made sense to try to add a platinum agent to our chemotherapy backbone to achieve better responses with the hope of curing more of these patients. Multiple trials have looked at the addition of carboplatin to neoadjuvant chemotherapy and triple negative breast cancer, and in general have shown improved path CR rates of roughly 20%. We're going to put the trials that showed this in our show notes, but I'm not going to go through them individually here. The one I did want to highlight was one that was presented at the San Antonio Breast Conference very recently, and it was from Tata Memorial Hospital in Mumbai, India, and it was a single center, but it was a randomized control trial and this was probably the best one done when we look at all of the trials that added a platinum agent. And what they did was they added carboplatin to taxol, followed by AC. So they were re- still giving the anthracycline to these patients. And they found that not only did we improve Path Cr by 20%, but we also had improved event-free survival and overall survival by a little over 10%. So it really was the first trial recently to really show that, hey, in a pretty good design here, we're showing that we have very good improved outcomes. The interesting part of this trial, though, was that the benefit was really for women who are younger than 50. Women who are older than the age of 50 didn't have this benefit. It's really unclear why that was, and I'm waiting for the publication to come out to really look at why they did that subgroup analysis the way they did, but it's pretty interesting. So it seems like younger women benefit from carboplatin more than older women with triple negative breast cancer, and that maybe could be due to higher rates of BRCA mutation. It's really unclear, but that's that's my theory, and I'm really curious to see what that publication will show, but that's really how we got the platinum agent added on to our backbone.
0: Well, wow, that's really interesting. And this again highlights just how quickly breast cancer management is changing. So Dan's comment about our current standard of care at the time of this recording is very valid and very true. So. Now we have a better, at least I have a better conceptual understanding of why we're adding a platinum agent for this patient, because we're trying to use the rationale of targeting the DNA repair issues in triple negative breast cancer. And it seems like patients with a BRCA mutation would be a great population to add the platinum in because of that exact reason. And this hopefully will lead to improved outcomes as well, given the underlying mechanism here. So going back to our case, she has a tumor that's greater than two centimeters. So that would be enough to go with TCAC plus Pembro. But she also has a node, so clearly needs this regimen. So all of this kind of supports the rationale for using this particular regimen. The one piece that we didn't talk about, guys, is the role of that Pembrolizumab. And I believe that was the Keynote 522 trial. So do one of you want to tell us a little bit about what the data was around that? Which I mean, probably showed that it showed benefit, but I'm just curious to know what the outcomes of that trial were.
2: All right, another keynote. Why not? So this is this is another one of those trials that, for better or for worse, we we really all need to look through, as it does inform our current standard of care. So this trial included uh, stage two and three patients. So those are remember greater than two centimeters uh, and or with a node. Patients were randomized to either receive chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab followed by surgery and then adjuvant pembrolizumab versus chemo alone, followed by surgery, and then adjuvant placebo. So the regimens at least would look kind of like each other, but then one has PEMBRO before and after, and the other one just has no PEMBRO. This was done kind of regardless of path CR status, uh, as observed at the time of surgery. So we'll talk about why that's an issue in a little bit. But the chemotherapy regimen that they gave was for neoadjuvant phase one, they started with carboplatin, either weekly or every three weeks, plus weekly Taxol for 12 weeks, followed by a phase two that included anthracycline, in this case doxorubicin, with cyclofoxamide every three weeks for 12 weeks. So, four cycles of that. Note that they did not give the anthracycline in a dose dense fashion in this trial. And so, if a patient was on the Pembro arm, then they got the Pembrolizumab every three weeks during both phases of neoadjuvant treatment, and then an additional nine cycles in the adjuvant setting after surgery and post-operative radiation. The primary endpoint in this trial was PATH-CR and event-free survival, notably not overall survival. PATH-CR improved by about 15% from 50% to 65% with the addition of pembrolizumab, and the three-year event-free survival was improved by about 8%, so 85% in the pembrolizumab arm regardless of which arm they got, there really wasn't a difference in EFS for those who achieved PATH-CR. So that seemed to really be where the the money was at in terms of getting the best benefit out of this. And all patients who did not achieve a PATH-CR ended up having worse EFS, regardless of whether or not they got pembro. There were more patients with this RCB 0 through 1 category in the pembro arm as well, compared with the chemo arm alone, uh, suggesting that patients may have been shifted from that higher risk category of RCV2 to 3 down to RCV1. We're just pointing this out because, again, this is probably going to be an important uh, surrogate in, in more future trials. Vivek, do you want to go through some of the limitations of this study?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of really important limitations here. The patients in the chemo alone arm and in the Pembro arm were not permitted to receive adjuvant capecitabine if they didn't achieve a PATH-CR. So we haven't talked about that trial. We're about to talk about it, but basically in triple negative breast cancer, the whole idea was if I don't achieve a PATH-CR, I know I have bad outcomes. Let me do something more. Let me do something different to eradicate any disease that's left over. And these patients weren't able to get capecitabine. It wasn't allowed. And so that really affects both the progression-free survival and the overall survival benefit in this randomized trial, right? Because we knew that it already improved outcomes, and they didn't get it when they should have. So hard to know what capecidibine would change, but I imagine there would be some change here. The other thing is all patients got adjuvant pembrolizumab for nine cycles, after they completed surgery and radiation, and that just seems like a lot of pembrolizumab for those who achieved a PATH-CR, and there's no really good rationale for why that was done. There's some talk that maybe the immune system was primed and ready to take care of any microscopic disease that was left over, but again, this leads to a lot of things. Time toxicity for the patient. They're having to come in for pembrolizumab and get stuck. Financial toxicity for the patient. They have to take off work, possibly. They can't get back to their normal life. They have to still think about this infusion. And also, let's not forget about the possible immune-related adverse events that can happen with this with these therapies. It's not the most frequent thing, but it does happen. So we have to keep all that in mind. And it's disappointing to see they didn't do another randomization, at least maybe the those who didn't achieve a PATH-CR, whether they continued PEMBRO or not. But they just gave Pembro to everybody. So we don't know whether we should continue Pembro in the adjuvant setting for these patients. And many providers would argue that it's probably not worth it, but again, we don't know the answer there.
2: Glad you brought up those sort of issues with continuing Pembro and definitely. in the oncology world, we do tend to think of these immune checkpoint inhibitors as, oh, they're they're fairly harmless. You know they don't reliably cause side effects. Talk to any of our colleagues and other specialties, our nephrology colleagues, our cardiology colleagues, our rheumatology colleagues, and they think this stuff is poison, because they only see people when they get really bad complications from it. And I'm sure the GI doctors are none too fond of us. In any event, I'm just I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, I don't think we should think of it as this totally benign thing that we're doing when we're adding it in that setting. This does lead to a nice segue on adjuvant treatment for patients who don't achieve a path to CR. We discussed what we saw in KeyNote 522, and we know that these patients that don't achieve a PATH-CR tend to have worse outcomes in terms of EFS, sort of in the 50 to 60% range. And so we have two options now for patients who have some residual disease. We can either give capecitabine, as you referenced, or olaparib if patients do have that BRCA mutation present. Can you tell us a little bit about the trials that led to approvals for these agents?
0: So listeners, as you may know, capecitabine is an oral 5-FU that worked well in the second line metastatic setting. And so as you now know, when something works well in the metastatic setting, we always try to see and push it up and see if it's effective in earlier lines of treatment. So there was a push to try to incorporate it into that neoadjuvant and also the adjuvant regimens. So this led to another important trial known as the CREATE-X trial. And so this was with patients with stage 1 to 3 HER2 negative Breast cancer, so not just triple negative, but also patients that had HER2 negative disease, who got neoadjuvant therapy and did not receive path CR, and so they were then randomized to receive capecitabine every three weeks for six to eight cycles versus placebo. And what was determined from this trial is that the disease-free survival improved by 15% and the overall survival improved by approximately 8% over placebo in the patients that had triple negative breast cancer. And there was no difference in the disease-free survival or overall survival for those with ER ER-positive disease. When we think of capecitabine, the important side effects to counsel our patients on and to monitor our patients for is hand-foot syndrome, GI issues, and also leukopenia. And so based on the results of the createx trial that led us to our current standard of care is that for patients with residual disease after neoadjuvant therapy in triple negative breast cancer, we then start them on oral capecitabine. And then Dan, you then asked about the treatment for patients with a BRCA mutation. So this is really important. And and I'm glad we also talked about who we screen for BRCA because it does have treatment implications as well as implications on mutational testing and and counseling for the patient and their family. But anyway, for patients that have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, there was also a trial that included HER2-negative patients called the Olympia trial. In this trial, we included patients who completed either neoadjuvant or adjuvant therapy, and they had one of these two mutations, but specifically the patients in this trial still had residual disease after neoadjuvant therapy if they got neoadjuvant therapy. And these patients were then randomized to receive laparib, which remember is a PARP inhibitor, and they received laparib for one year, and this was compared to patients that got placebo as the comparator arm. And the primary endpoint was invasive disease-free survival. In this study, 82% of the patients were triple negative. So that's important to know. Not all patients were, but 82% of them were. And what we found was that there was improved three-year invasive disease-free survival and distant disease-free survival was improved by approximately 8% which was great because 85% of the patients were disease-free in the elaborate form. There was no major difference in the three-year overall survival, but the major limitation here was that there was no capecitabine given, which we know improves disease-free survival and overall survival in triple negative breast cancer patients with residual disease after neoadjuvant therapy.
2: That does seem like a pretty significant limitation. I mean, it's great that we saw some improvement, but you know, compared to our standard of care, which I would think of as as capecitamine in this setting, I'm really curious to see how much it adds, or maybe even if they were combined, but I I don't design these trials. So our patient ended up getting TCAC plus pembrolizumab and unfortunately did not achieve a path CR. Uh, She does also have this BRCA1 mutation. So what do we do here? Is it, do we have a clear choice between elabarib and capecitamine given the data that we have?
1: Yeah, that's the tricky situation here. There is no right answer in this situation. For this type of patient, you could go with capecitabine, or you could go with laparib. My concern with olaparib is a few things. One, the issue of secondary malignancy with AML and MDS, particularly if this is a young patient that you're trying to cure, and it's 12 months of therapy, which is actually longer than the duration of capecitabine therapy. We still have no evidence that laparib is better than capecitabine or capecitabine is better than laparib because we haven't done that study. We actually don't know. My preference and my just sort of personal bias would be really to go with that capecitabine because it's shorter and I'm worried about this AML, MDS. In that Olympia trial, there wasn't an increased incidence in AML and MDS, but that's also with only two and a half years of follow-up. So it's really unclear what's happening with those patients. The other question is, so let's say that we went with either capesitamine or olaparib, do we continue the pembrolizumab? And again, we have no idea whether we should continue it or not. My bias is if I've got residual disease, I don't think more Pembro is going to push my patient, change the trajectory of their disease. And again, we don't have the answer for that. A good randomized study looking at that would give us better insight, But it's one of the things that we have in breast cancer. It's the issue that we have in lung cancer. We don't know a lot of the times because we're just continuing this immune therapy, both neoadjuvantly and adjuvantly. So you could continue the Pembro and add capecitabine. You could continue the Pembro and add olaparib. You could stop the Pembro and just do capecitabine. You could stop the Pembro and just do olaparib. That just gives you a sense of of all the options we have for the triple negative breast cancer patients with residual disease after neoadjuvant systemic therapy.
2: Well, if there's one thing we know about breast cancer, there's no doubt we'll get more data in the future and hopefully we'll get some clarity.
0: Yeah, definitely. Most definitely. And every major meeting that happens, there's always some new data coming out about breast cancer. So we're now just a few months away from December, which means another San Antonio breast conference is gonna be happening. And I'm sure there'll be more granularity in in regards to some of these questions that you brought up, Evic. But those are great points. And you know, listeners, what I also wanted to point out was hopefully you are feeling more comfortable with finding limitations of some of these big trials, especially after that recent discussion that we had with our friends to OncDocs, and, and trying to understand how our new trials that are discussed at these major meetings really contributing to our approach to treatment of current diseases. And it's important that we as physicians and providers for these patients, really think about what the nuances of these trials are, understand what the current standards are, how this informs treatment, because this is all important. And as you can see, when you think a lot about these things, questions like what we discuss here do come up inevitably. And these will be real life scenarios for sure that you're gonna be tasked with when you see these patients.
1: One of the last things I wanna say before we wrap up today is just a couple of things. One, read our show notes and look at what this residual cancer burden means. You're going to see it a lot more in some of these trials, and it's good to know what that means. Two, this is very simple. If you're less than $2 and have no nodes, you can do TC times 4 adjuvantly. If you're more than $2 or have a node, it's TC, AC, plus Pembro. If there's residual disease, go ahead and add capecitabine. If there's residual disease and you have a BRCA mutation, you can add a laparib, and that's it. It's not all that overly complicated. We went through a lot of data. It's good to know how all of this came about, but that's the simple algorithm. Thanks for bringing it home, Vivek. I appreciate that.
0: All right, guys. Well, I think that wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow on Call. So until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.